Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. As part of our series on building and leading world-class creative teams, we'll be talking to leaders of organizations inside and outside of architecture, but all in industries where creativity means success or failure. Our first conversation is with Pete Johnson. Pete is an executive creative professional who has led creative teams at iconic and beloved brands such as Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, and most recently, The Lego Group. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he talks about the trajectory of his career, what he's learned about leading creative teams, serving business needs without stifling creative drive, and why he thinks there is no such thing as a dream job. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Pete, welcome to This is Design Intelligence, and thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you uh, for having me, Bob. I'm really honored and excited to be here. Well, there's a a lot of things that uh, we'll want to talk to you about today. Uh, You've spent a career uh, in leading creative organizations in a variety of different contexts. Uh, I want to get a little bit into your backstory and how you got to where you are. Now, as I understand it, you grew up in a house where probably you were the only one on your block whose parents did what yours did for a living. Oh, yeah, uh, I think I think that's that's true. But I, I, I grew up in kind of middle school and high school in, in Northern Virginia. So there were a lot of government employees all around me. But my my dad was in the FBI and he worked counterintelligence. Uh, and my uh, my mom was an analyst for the CIA, uh, not undercover. So she wrote reports on Spain, Portugal, Mexico, uh, South America. Uh, Portuguese and Spanish speaking countries. But yeah, so yeah, it was kind of growing up in a in a house with, I don't know, federal police, I guess. <laughs> we didn't have much freedom. Well, how did, uh, must have made uh, dinner conversation very interesting. Yeah, I mean, some things, you know, we, we couldn't talk about. We were a house that followed the news a lot. My dad was on Nightline once. I thought that was a huge thrill. I was kind of a geeky kid that watched Nightline when I was way too young to do that, um, which is no, long, no longer a show anymore in politics and government. But yeah, um, but it was great. And we had some, you know, it, it, we had other FBI families that we socialized with. So it just seemed normal growing up that way. Well, you and I met a long time ago now in the late 1990s. We were both at Cartoon Network. I was an art director there. And what was your position there? Uh, my first job was a writer-producer in the uh, on-air department, uh, Cartoon On Air, we called it. And we did the promos um, in between the shows. In those early years, we actually did a lot of short form content is uh, we didn't have very many uh, paying advertisers. So we had a lot of dead air to fill. Uh, but I worked on the on air promotion for the network and for the shows. And then I think by 98, I was, I might've been a creative supervisor at that point. So the beginning, the, the nascent time of my management career is when we met. <laughs> right. So your first opportunity to lead people in a creative organization was at Cartoon Network, right? Uh, correct. Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, Cartoon Network, we're, I guess it's celebrating its 30th anniversary in October, which is unbelievable. It was interesting because there were so few of us, as you remember, there's just so few people at the organization at Cartoon Network. And I don't think any of us really knew what we were doing. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself and my team. But uh, we were just kind of figuring it out as we went. I think most of us were in our mid-20s at the time or even younger. And we had very little supervision. So just finding the way creatively. And as the organization matured a bit, at least the department I was in, and ratings became a big deal and original cartoons and uh, shows started being uh, produced, all of a sudden we started having career paths and promotions and some of us became management. And 
And at the very early stages, it was very difficult. It was a difficult transition. And I'm sure it's a difficult transition for a lot of maybe your listeners in the in this space. When you, you used to be a colleague and now you're a manager or a supervisor, it's it's a different mindset. And for me anyway, I didn't make that transition very smoothly. For the benefit of most of our listeners who are going to be in the built environment industries like architecture and engineering and construction, um, what your job was or what that area of Cartoon Network did is it created little promotional media that kind of went in between the shows and helped promote the network and things like that, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it's a good way of putting it. Basically, we were making the commercials for the shows, telling people when they're on, what it, what they're about hopefully showing clips that made them want to tune in. And then the other thing, like you mentioned, was content, short content around promoting the network and the and the brand and trying to establish a tone of voice for this brand new thing. And so tell us a little bit about what type of creative professionals worked with you and that you came to manage at Cartoon Network. Sure. Well, our department, I think, was probably pretty traditional in the sense that we had writer-producers, and those are people that would get a brief for a project and come up with the script and figure out how to make it, make the video, the short videos, uh, and partner with the project manager and editors, and sometimes they'd shoot their own thing. As we got bigger, we would, we would, we would have outside directors to do that. I was a writer-producer. We had designers that were more about the visual aesthetic of what we were making. There were art directors as well, which are very similar to that. They were more hands-on with the production. And then we had producers, as we got bigger, that would help these bigger projects come to life, managing budgets and working with outside, maybe uh, post-production houses to finish the job because we were pretty small in the beginning. Sure. So what were some of the, the lessons that you learned with your first exposure to creative leadership? Well, I think by 2000, I was I was uh, the creative director of the whole department of On Air, and I made I don't know I think by way of answering this question, I should probably say the mistakes I made. I think I think I learned my lessons through my mistakes, and some of the mistakes I made early on was, as I said, not really making that transition very well from colleague to boss, and when I would be evaluating creative or seeing creative in front of me or having you know a writer or art director or designer in my office. Instead of directing the creative in a in a not hands off but in a in a more delicate way, I would basically say, "Oh, I wouldn't write this thing this way. Here's how you should write it," or "I wouldn't design this this way. Here's how you should design it." To put it in simple terms, and of course, that didn't endear me with anyone. Uh, but I got some you know clear feedback from from you know my department because they saw me going down this this path, which would make me a very bad creative director. And they uh, they gave me you know some hard talks and said, listen, you know we need you to help with the work and and inspire us and and maybe think of it from a different perspective. But we're not asking you to write the work and create the work. So that was a big lesson that's I've taken through my career as I become you know various levels of a creative director, ECD, and all that. It's something to keep in mind that that you're there to facilitate, maybe clear the road and and give your creatives an opportunity to, to do amazing work not to get in the way. So what did your approach look like by the time that you left? It was partly one of the reasons I left. I was, I think we were very successful, especially myself and my senior team, setting up this environment where creatives were doing really great work, but they're also being really responsible to the business and to the strategy. And there was less and less for me to do. So I kind of, in a way, put myself out of a job, which you know, I think is partly what you should be doing as a creative leader. Uh, you want the group to su- survive after you're gone and not just be kind of a cult of personality or built around one person. And so I think that's that's what, what happened. Uh, we were fortunate that Cartoon was 
firing on all cylinders and doing really great work. I myself didn't feel like I was learning that much anymore. It was a hard decision to leave, but part of it was that I knew it was going to continue without me. Yeah, gotcha. And your next opportunity was at uh, the global advertising firm Saatchi & Saatchi, correct? Uh, yes, in New York. That's right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing at that firm. Sure. So I, I, I left Cartoon Network and I got an opportunity back in New York uh, with Saatchi & Saatchi. They were looking for someone with more entertainment experience to lead their, uh, their youth business, which at that time was mostly uh, for a client, a huge client, General Mills. So it was uh, cereals and yogurts is what I went to go do. And so I became the group creative director on uh, uh, youth uh, advertising uh, for Saatchi and & Saatchi. And my client was General Mills. It was a, about a $70 million account. It was pretty big. Uh, but I had a very small team of eight creatives at the time, four, four teams of two. And so that was, that was, to me, that was a huge step to go from entertainment into advertising. I was very excited. And I made some assumptions that uh, taught me some more hard truths very quickly. What were some of those assumptions? Well, I think for anyone out there that's that's worked at this at one company or one industry for a long time, maybe you know over five years, maybe ten years, I was at Cartoon for ten years, and it was my first big opportunity, big first big job in my career, and it was an amazing creative environment. And you know, with all the years that have passed, I think I only remember all the amazing things, but there were you know annoying and institutional things and you know, politics and all that, like in every place. But when I left to go to Saatchi, I just assumed, okay, well, Cartoon Network is an amazing creative space and, and organization. And, and I was a senior leader there and I knew what I was doing. I can just like transfer all that onto Saatchi because Saatchi is going to also be an amazing creative environment. And it was, but it was set up in a very different way. Um, and so in my first couple of weeks, I realized I, I had really made a total miscalculation on on uh they weren't apples to apples they were two different things and so i had to learn quickly what a new culture was it was a little bit more corporate in sachi but also the client and um client and agency relationship i was not used to because just to go back to cartoon network for a second we were all working for cartoon network whether we were marketing ad sales programming creative and and at the end of the day you could have knock down drag out fights you know about what you think scooby would really say in the situation and you could have a beer with them later and there'd be no problem because we were all going in the same direction for cartoon network at sachi and sachi with a client there's other concerns there's other agenda not saying it's you know sinister but there's a lot more moving parts and sometimes it could come be a bit more adversarial with an agency and a client so i had to learn lots of things very quickly uh, and the funny thing, and too, for me, was a lot of people assumed that Saatchi assumed I just knew all this stuff because I'd come from a creative environment. So they kind of made the same assumptions in reverse. They thought maybe Cartoon was just like an agency, but it wasn't. So at Saatchi, one of the main differences was that you had more stakeholders who were involved in all the creative decisions, or at least there were more people that you were responsible to. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what I had to learn quickly was that you had to recruit you know, outside allies to advocate for the creative ideas. You couldn't just say, oh, because I'm creative and this is what we want to do. You had to, you had to communicate and you had to get the buy-in and support of an outside group that all had a vested interest, maybe from a different perspective of the work. Well, I imagine it was like learning to speak a different language. 
right? Because you had to appeal to the clients from their perspective about the kind of things that they cared about and frame your creative ideas around those. That's a good example. One of my first meetings with General Mills, I was at an offsite with them and uh, there was a a facilitator talking about two different directions for uh, how we were going to treat a character called Chip the Wolf from uh, Cookie Crisp. And one direction was doing the same thing they've been doing for years which is fine. (laughs) And then the other direction was doing things a little differently. um, And it was more interesting. And we got to the point of the offsite where we went around the room and everybody was voting for the status quo. And it came to me and I was towards the end. And I just said, look, I, I think it's very clear. I'm the new guy, but I think we probably will do more exciting work and better work. And we might even sell more cereal if we go with a new way. And uh, a woman next to me, an executive on the business, turned to me and said, uh, what did you just say? And I said, uh, I think we could sell a lot more cereal. I don't know we could or not, but I mean, the chances are it's probably better if we do something different than just keep doing what we're doing. And she said, we sell just the amount of cereal we want to sell. Thank you. And that really freaked me out because I thought, you know, here I am thinking it's all about creative. It's all about the work. And what really was going on was, you know, they have business goals. They've already set their goals for the year. One of my account people explained to me that if they set too ambitious a goal uh, one year, that's going to really hurt them financially and for other reasons and budget-wise. So I didn't know any of those words. I didn't know those that syntax. I didn't know that language. I was coming in at it really only looking at the creative side. And what I learned very quickly was, there's a business side to the creative that I really wasn't exposed to too much at Cartoon Network. And I did get that exposure in a big way at Saatchi and Saatchi. Again, thanks to General Mills as well. So how did you, I mean, that's a really interesting dynamic that I think a lot of our listeners can identify with uh, because you've got this tension between business needs and kind of creative goals or creative drive. When you first discovered that or when you first got to, got to kind of feel that, how did it change the way that you approached creative work and leading your teams? Well, I, I you know, I, I had to think about a different way of doing things. I realized I couldn't do the job that I'd done at Cartoon Network. I had to do it in a different way at Saatchi. And, and I went to my chief creative officer at the time, Tony Granger, who hired me. He's retired. He's retired recently. And, you know, I told him I'm, I'm a bit lost. And, and he said, you have to hear what the client wants and give them what they need. That's your role. Your role is not to hear what the client wants and give them what they want. Your your role is not to hear what the client wants and then negate that and say, no, this is what you want. You have to take their desire and, and marry it with the strategic and business goals of, of the client, but also the agency to do the best work that we can do. And so there's a lot more math involved, but that's, you know, I think when I... When I realized that, then I was able to talk to my teams to make sure that whether I was in the room or not, they were always aware of that uh, that kind of mantra: hear what the client wants and give them what they need. Because otherwise, you know, you're just going to be a yes a yes team, a yes creative group, and it most likely will not help the business. So you, there has to be that tension there. So I guess I'm restating the tension, but it's it's um, there's a tension, but we're not negating each other's expertise. If that makes sense. You know, it makes perfect sense. And it also makes a lot of sense that some of the most creative work comes from working within a set of constraints, right? Like oh, yeah. what it is that the client wants. Now, is that a sensibility that you took with you to Nickelodeon, which I think was your next stop? Right. So Nickelodeon is uh, an amazing uh, children's network and production 
group and team and they make films and TV shows. Uh, and so I was hired to create a creative group inside Nickelodeon. And, and that term we usually say is in-house. So I was the in-house creative agency. And that would be as opposed to Asachi, which would be, you know, quote, out of house or an external agency that you would hire on a retainer basis or for a certain project. The in-house team worked for Nickelodeon. So it's very much like my life at Cartoon Network, but we were use, we were making advertising for advertising clients that were running their commercials and spending ad dollars on uh, Nickelodeon. So basically, it's like a synthesis of the last two leadership roles that you talked about. Exactly. By this time, you started to become a fairly seasoned creative leader. Were there any surprises or lessons that came out of that time at Nickelodeon? Yeah, a few. I think the first thing, uh, well, I think it changed in me when I took that job was being more mature. I spent the first four to six weeks observing the existing team that I had. There were about 19, 19 people, maybe a little less. Um, and so I just, I literally was a fly in the wall. Uh, and during that time, I also met with each of them individually to tell them what my creative vision was, why I thought I was hired, what I wanted to do. My, my vision was still a fiction because it wasn't really what they were doing at the time. They were more of a creative services group servicing kind of the ad sales team and making short videos for internal use and, and other meetings. And so I basically went on a fact-finding exercise for four to six weeks. So I looked at the processes that were in place. I didn't try to rock the boat right away. I met each person individually and asked them directly, you know, after I told them my, my hopes and dreams and my visions, what are their hopes and dreams? What do they want to do here? Why have they been here for as long as they've been here? What do they like to do? And I was able to come up with a, it's almost like looking at a team, like a, like a soccer team, just, you know, who's in the right position, who might be in the wrong position, but still can contribute in a, in a great way. And that's what I did. Uh, I just was very methodical about how I set it up. And then that made everything else a lot easier. It took about two and a half years to get it all up and running. I had I did make some new hires, but getting new processes in place made it easier when I knew who on my team could do what and what they really wanted to do. And some, to be honest, you know, two or three wanted to leave. They didn't agree with my vision. They didn't like that I was that I that I was changing what they were going to do, and they left. So that's uh, that 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 was uh, I think a really great experience for me because it's nothing personal but it's it's nice when someone disagrees with you so the idea of vision is a really intriguing one because on the one hand you you've got to have a vision in order to lead a team or an organization anywhere but on the other hand you've got smart and creative people who want to contribute to the direction uh, that the that the team or the organization is going how do you hit the right balance it's a good question i i think the most important thing is you have to have a creative vision and that creative vision needs to be compelling. And I think it's one that the team that you're leading needs to, to see themselves contributing to. It has to be something accessible to them that they can understand and that they can see how they can contribute to it and how it can benefit them as well. Not only doing great work for their career, but also uh, giving them a sense of belonging, something bigger than themselves and something that they're proud of being part of. I think part of a vision, a vision, creative vision is one thing, but that really falls out to, is there a clear career path for a creative? Is there fair compensation? And nowadays, is there a, a flexible work environment? All of that kind of services the vision. And to get buy-in, you need to, to walk the, the talk. Um, I think you need to be very clear about what the vision is and, and, and uh, broadcast it 
to people not only in your team but outside your team. You have to be clear about what your values are. For me, in uh, every place I've been, uh, I'm very vocal and explicit about my big values being honesty, transparency, collaboration, support, and even I love friendly competition. So I mean, they're not all values, but they're just kind of tactics. But I want to have a place that's a dynamic environment that everyone feels a part of. If you don't feel a part of it, then challenge me on the vision and maybe I'll agree with you and maybe we can make make an addition or tweak the vision so that's even better. Uh, and if you disagree with the vision 100% and just don't want to be there, that's also good too, because that makes me re-examine what I'm doing and what I'm saying and what the team is doing. Expressing a clear vision is super important. And a lot of people may poo-poo it because it's like a bumper sticker, right? But there's so much behind it. And you need to be able to talk about it and live it. And I think part of that is the relationships. For me, anyway, I look back, I mean, you and I are not, haven't been closed over the last few years, just kind of reconnected, right, Bob? But, but we've stayed in touch and aware of each other. We have good feelings and good experiences from the past. And I think, at least for me, I have a lot of longstanding relationships from all the positions and clients that I've worked with, almost all of them, um, that keep me going to this day and, and, and nourish me and also enrich me. And I hope I enrich them by being part of those relationships. And that all starts from the cultures that I've grown up in and, and, and helped create as well. Everything you were talking about with vision, uh, it reminds me of the importance of a strong partner to vision, which is culture. And leaders have to be very intentional about how they, how they create culture, what kind of culture they create. It has to be steeped in both their values and their vision. Uh, tell us about your approach to creating a culture of creativity. What's really important is a leader can't do it by him or herself. He, he or she needs to have support from their senior team. And for me, anyway, it's it's always and maybe maybe when I was younger, I was too too like you know, hey, I'm here, talk to me, type of thing. But as I've gotten older. Having you know an open door policy—that's an old office reference for those who don't have offices anymore. Uh, <laughs> the uh, you know uh, an open door policy, but also being very honest with your team. Uh, again, keeping in mind the individual personalities and the level of seniority and all that. But they know they can trust you, and you also empower them to be stewards of the culture of the group as well. And that, at least in a creative um, environment, I think that's an a transferable thing because no matter what creative endeavor you're doing, you're representing a vision, you're representing a company, you're representing a project. And I think empowering people is what I've tried to do as much as I can in my career. And again, reminding them when we're deviating from the culture, part of it too, is it can't just only be percolated inside. I think once you've got your vision and you're building your culture and your values are clear, there's certain things you can do. Well, I'll start with inside. Inside to give credit to the creatives, right? As a leaders, as leaders, sometimes we are in rooms. Most of the times, we're we're in rooms without our teams. So even when your team isn't there, name them. Uh, let them know. You know, let let the people that you're presenting to your clients, your other department heads, or whatever, who did the work, and even say something personal about those people on that project. I think I like to do that because then those other people will run into your team or uh, on the outside and, and have something nice to say to them. I think 
The other thing on the outside is infusing the culture with energy and inspiration on a regular basis. So at every place I've been, to some degree, more successful than others, I've had outside creative people come in, uh, much like what you're doing with this podcast, Bob, to come in and just speak about their creative process. My boss, Michael Oline, who's now the president of of uh, Cartoon Network did this with a few amazing authors. Michael Palin and some other people came into Cartoon Network at Nickelodeon. I had beatboxers, I had film directors, I had singers and even chefs come in. And then in uh, Lego Agency, uh, we've done that as well with some different creatives in advertising. So I think it's really important for your creative team, no matter what you do, to get the perspective and insights and uh, you know stories from other creatives outside an industry because that just that puts new blood into into the into the team into the culture and also it shows that you're living a, a culture that's curious because that's another really big thing you should be as a creative is always curious and a curious culture is going to be always questioning always learning always pushing boundaries and that's a that's really a great place to be in in any creative work curiosity is such an important attribute for creative individuals and teams. I can't emphasize how strongly I agree with you on that. In your answer, you referred to your next position, which is at Lego in Denmark, right? Yeah, my position is a head of creation at Lego Agency, which is a crazy title. In a nutshell, it is the uh, lead creative of the in-house agency for Lego. What we do is we make TV commercials, advertising, and all video content and social media content that promotes and advertises uh, Lego sets uh, and also uh, the brand uh, of Lego, which unbelievably Lego just started having a brand message at the end of uh, 2019. And that's a lot of what we do uh, on a, on a monthly basis now is put out content around our brand uh, message, which is rebuild the world. So how many, how many folks are on your team and what kind of creative professionals are you working with? In Billings, Denmark, which is the headquarters, I have about 50 plus copywriters, art directors, producers, and designers on the team there. Uh, most are Danish. Uh, there's a smaller subset that are uh, expats, you know, not Danish from all over the world, which is pretty amazing to work with people with different backgrounds like that. It's very inspiring and great for creativity. Uh, and then I have a smaller team of about 10 in London that do a lot of our social content and also do uh, longer pieces of content around our Rebuild the World uh, campaign. So how how did all the lessons that you learned at Cartoon Network and Saatchi and Saatchi and Nickelodeon, how did they play out when you first came to Lego? First coming to Lego, I, again, having had my experience between shifting from cartoon to Saatchi, I, I went in with my eyes open. I knew I had a lot to learn. I knew I had to be open to what this new environment is going to be, uh, and then look in my past to see what could apply there. Uh, so that worked out really well in the beginning. Uh, my family uh, and I arrived on January seventh. Uh, I think uh, I think my first day of work was January seventh or something after that. Uh, on tw- in twenty twenty, in the depths of the Danish winter, so it was cold and wet and dark. My wife and two boys had a rough time the first three months. I I had an easier time because I was at work. But those first three months, I I spent kind of like what I did at Nickelodeon. I was I was observing, kind of trying to soak in the culture, the corporate culture, and the Danish culture with that Lego is 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 pretty much. Uh, intertwined in a really interesting uh, way, but just when I thought I, you know, had a had a sense of where I landed and what I needed to do, even though three months wasn't enough time, 
COVID hit. And like everyone else in the world, I had to learn how to do everything in a whole new way on screens. I hadn't met everyone on my team yet. I hadn't even met my colleagues on the leadership team in person that much. So it was just a, it was a, it was a rough year that 2020. And so it was a year just adapting and, and trying to figure it out like we all did. But uh, since then, um, I was able to work on a culture that has to fit within a really powerful culture and a really beloved culture on the outside. The Lego, the love for Lego around the world is incredible. I've never worked for a brand or a company uh, with that aspect. The gravity in a good way of Lego um, permeates the air, everything that we do. And so I had to make sure that the culture fit the microculture. And we didn't really talk about this, but I think you've got your macro culture in an organization, especially in a creative organization. And then every little creative group, you know, within that organization is going to have their little microculture. And so I had to walk into an established macroculture. Uh, there was a microculture of the Lego agency, which needed to, to evolve. And that was part of my role, but it had to make sense to the bigger culture. Um, and so that was, that was something I hadn't really experienced before. You know, every time I do work, I want to do great work for myself. I want my team to do great work. I want to sell. If I'm selling, I want to win awards. I want to get accolades. I want to get great PR. I want to attract great talent. I want to retain great talent. But at Lego, there just was this responsibility, this tremendous responsibility I felt, and I'm sure the creators feel as well, that the work we do has to be worthy of Lego. It has to be worthy of this brand that, that the world loves uh, and that does such great philanthropic work as well for children and families around the world. And like you mentioned with designers and architects and a lot of people listening and in this industry to the podcast, they grew up playing with Lego bricks. You know, the mission, the overarching mission of Lego is to inspire and develop the builders of tomorrow. So, I mean, that's amazing that, that you said that, that your listeners say that, but that just is always the forefront of my mind and my creator's mind. And it's part of the culture. It's like, we have a responsibility that maybe none of us has felt before as creatives working at Lego. It's I don't want to say it's a reverence, but it's something that I think we wear with pride. But also when we're looking at ideas, I think we scrutinize ideas a bit more because it, it's got to be worthy of Lego. Sure. Well, Lego is a part of everybody's growing up. So you had a lot of challenges coming at you all at once. You know, you arrived shortly before COVID. You had this whole different way of working. You were stepping into this very strong culture, but you were also stepping into an environment that was completely new for you, right? Because this was the first opportunity that you had to work in a non-U.S. company or at least work outside the United States. How did you deal with being an expat and then also balancing you know, all the challenges you were facing in your leadership responsibilities and what your family needed? It wasn't really a good balancing act. I think I had to I put my attention to certain things at once because it was just such a tumultuous time. But the work culture, I think, was a little bit easier um, or seemed more familiar um, on like how to navigate. I had a lot to learn. But super positive thing is is just having people from not only from Denmark, but from all over the world is just a diversity that I'd never really experienced before. And when I first got to Lego into the agency and started meeting my team and, and ideating and being exposed to people from different backgrounds and walks of life, it was so different and so fresh and so uh, incredible. And I just, it just makes every day great and every project 
just a breath of fresh air to have those different perspectives. So the other thing about the culture, you know, the language was an issue. At least at Lego, the official language is English, so it wasn't a work thing. But when you're not at work and you're walking around your town, when you're walking just outside the office, you know, uh, when I first arrived, I couldn't really decipher Danish. It's a it's a tough language, but and for anyone that's been in a you know for a long period of time in a in a in a different culture with a different language that maybe you don't even recognize. You know, there's a part of your brain subconsciously that is trying to decode and you're and, and trying to navigate, um, helping you navigate, but it's really exhausting. It's a subconscious thing, but I was exa- I was so tired all the time. And I'm sure that was partly just having a new a new job and new new challenges, but just there was no relief until you went to sleep. <laughs> uh, and so one thing I did was in my town, I, I live in Herning, in a, which is a, a comuna, small town. And through the Kamuna, I was able to uh, take language lessons. And so for over two years, I've been taking uh, Danish. I passed my level two test not too long ago. And as I got better at the language, just opened the, the world to me in a much better way. I mean, I, I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination. I can get through a nice conversation in a coffee shop or a bakery or a supermarket and, and on the street. But that really helped me feel more a part of, of my community. And then the second thing I did was join an expat organization in Herning, where I live, called the International Society of Herning. Really creative title, but um, a bunch of expats from all over the world. And I was on the board there. I'm on the board there as a treasurer. And it was great to meet and become friends with and talk with other expats from other other uh, countries, but also in other industries, going through the same thing I'm going through. And that really, you know, I have great friends from that and I'm very thankful for them because that's how I got through after COVID. That's that's what keeps me going outside of work, those friendships. And and any advice that I would give is if you're in that situation to not only ha- you know cultivate those work friendships, but also look outside in your community and be a part of your community somehow, because that helps tremendously. So reaching out into the community, developing relationships. I mean, you talked earlier in this discussion about the importance of of relationships. And, you know, one of the things that we don't always talk about when we talk about leadership is what personal costs are involved or what goes on inside of a, of a leader when you're in these kind of situations. Uh, because you have, um, you know, there, there's so many other responsibilities and kind of a role to play. But, you know, a lot of times in leadership situations, as you know, there's, uh, there's some very human issues that come up. For me, the personal challenges were 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 mostly on my, my my family. The trip to Denmark and the the move to Denmark was very traumatic for them. If if you've got concerns or things happening in your family, it's that that really needs your attention, your energy. You can't often devote all your attention and energy to your work, or it, it'll creep in and affect your work. Um, I'm really um, an advocate of being able to bring your whole self to work, and I think when a big part of you is undergoing stress uh, that's not related to your work. It's, you know, you need to be open with your, with your leaders um, and with your colleagues about that. And, and for me, um, my, my older son had a really tough time with the transition. My wife had a tough time in the beginning as well, but it got pretty bad during COVID times. And so, you know, while I'm still trying to struggle and learn how to deal with my team on screens and do work and the crazy COVID situation we were all in, I also had a, a family that was severely depressed. Uh, my older son had 
had a bit of a breakdown um, and we uh, went back to the US the summer of 2020 and made a tough decision to um, to uh, have my older son and my wife stay in the US for him to finish school and get some help that he needed. And I went back to Denmark with my younger son who was 16 at the time. And then, you know, my wife and I each became single parents uh, separated by an ocean and six hours of time. So that was stressful in its own right. But the positives were I got really much closer to my younger son, found a way to communicate and stay connected to my wife. She came and visit every few months. But uh, I was also really open about it at work because especially when, if everyone can remember those times of being on screens, there's just times that you don't want to be on screen, right? There's times when you're just totally stressed out or you just need a break. And, and I was very vocal about when I needed to do that. And, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I did at Lego around this topic was um, uh, we have a thing every uh, twice a year called the Remix Festival. And it's an in-house, it's kind of what I said about bringing creative outside voices in, but it also elevates people in the organization that have outside interests or uh, have accomplished something in the business. And it's a way of celebrating the team. And it just is part of that creative culture that I uh, mentioned before. And uh, I was approached by someone with the Remix Festival to see if I wanted to talk about resilience. It was very open-ended. Just would you mind through, through what you're going through with your family, would you share that about what you learned about resilience? And I, I responded quicker. It was an email. I responded quicker than I really thought about it. I think um, I said yes, of course. And then I did a you know a twenty minute presentation to you know it was broadcast to all of our offices around the world and internally and everything about coming to Lego and and the family struggles that I've had. But yeah, so and it felt great. It was to me. I didn't think I needed it, but it was a catharsis to tell my story and my family's story, uh, it helped a lot. And that's, that's another thing. I think sharing the, the highs and the lows are really important. And that's why you need friends. That's why you need open communication with your family and with your, and with your team. It goes back to the value of transparency that you talked about, you know, forming at the beginning of your career. How did you resolve all these challenges? And, you know, how did you apply lessons of resilience and how'd you get through all this? The lessons that I that I talked about in the in the in the presentation I gave and what I, I truly do sometimes more often than others, but they sound very hokey. But one is you know just being um, diligent about self care. We hear that a lot now, but I think self care. I literally mean just when you need to get away for yourself and get, whether that means going for a run, like I often did. You know, just going to sleep, going to a movie, uh, something you're doing just for yourself. You should do that, and I was able to do that communicate your your feelings to those around you so there isn't like that tension or you're you're snapping at people the other thing i started doing is just writing down you know all the positive things you know things i'm thankful for and they could be silly things like i'll go back to danish bakeries because they're fantastic you know your favorite danish bakery um or your children or the great conversations you had with your spouse like things like that that one in the beginning, I was really diligent about it, but then after after a while, it became more of a thing I was almost, almost doing mentally in my head, and I would I have to sit down and get back into the writing of it, and then not feeling guilty. I just a sense of guilt was always around me, <laughs> and I always felt guilty if I was not feeling my best or wallowing a bit, or or I would categorize it as wallowing when it really wasn't, or taking time to to give myself some self care. There was some guilt associated with that, so I remind myself not to feel guilty about that. 
right? That it's okay to keep yourself healthy as a leader so that you can help bring health to the organization that you lead. So Pete, tell me, with all of these challenges and everything that you've learned, what does the future hold? The future future is unknown. I made a very uh, big decision uh, recently. Uh, I mean, by the time, um, I think by the time this airs, I will no longer be head of creation at the Lego agency. I'm, I'm looking for my next opportunity. You know, the last year being so far away, the situation that my family was going through, my older son's doing much better now, but but the separation between my wife and I just seemed didn't make sense anymore. And so I approached Lego and I said, I, I, I think I need to leave and get back to my family and, and look for something else. Uh, and they were very supportive, which I really appreciate. So my last official day as head of creation <laughs> at the Lego agency will be September 30th. And I'm finally made a decision and told everyone I got such a wave of positive energy. I mean, some people, you know, a lot of people were upset I was leaving, but a lot of people knew that I was, you know, in some level of pain with what was going on. And they kind of were very happy that I was making that decision. So yeah, so, uh, but when I made the decision and announced it, it just felt right. I mean, this weight was lifted from me and I'm really excited about new opportunities. Um, I've spread the word with my, with my network. Um, uh, and, uh, I've got some, I got a few months to enjoy time with the family, uh, before I need to, you know, get super into the job hunt. But hopefully when this airs, I will have a new position already. It's a, it's a fascinating story and there's a whole lot to it. Um, throughout our whole conversation, we've talked about kind of what you've learned in the arc of your career uh, in leading within creative organizations and different kinds of creative organizations. And now, you know, you've just gone through some both professional and personal challenges, as we all do. And, of course, we hope that, you know, uh, everything's working out wonderfully there. Uh, but when you look back on everything that you've learned and everything that you've experienced, and then when you look forward into what's important to you now and what you want to do next, how has that changed? What you might have thought was a great thing to do, you know, uh, back when we were working together in our, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and then when where you are in life now and as a leader now, what kind of opportunity appeals to you uh, for the future or describe to us a little bit about what that great scenario would look like? I think the one thing I will say is what I've learned is, and I don't want to take this away, and it's not negative implication for anyone who feels this way, but I don't now, I don't believe there's such a thing as a dream job. And I think that's okay. So I think what I'm looking for is, you know, a creative leadership position where I can set a creative vision, I can build a creative culture, I can develop creative people and teams to do great work, but to do the best work of their careers. I really think that's my goal as a creative leader to set the stage, to clear the road, to create the environment for creatives that work for me or in the team that I work on to do the best work of their careers. Because as I look back, I think I've been fortunate to be part of and have physically myself done some great work. But I feel like back in those Cartoon Network days, that that feeling that we were all making each other better, I, that's what I want at the next job. I want, to, I, want, I, want to make, I want to have an environment or be part of a place or help build a culture where everyone is trying to make each other better, better people, better creatives being responsible to the business, of course. Well, Pete, it sounds like you have had not only a really intriguing and exciting 
past career, uh, but you've got some fantastic uh, vistas to look forward to, and we wish you the best with those. And I want to make sure that you understand how much we appreciate uh, you coming to share your insights with us as a leader in a creative organization. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for the kind words. And again, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.